0: So this morning we are back in the eleventh chapter of John, the raising of Lazarus. And for the scripture reading this morning, I want to begin in verse number twenty-eight and read through verse forty-four or forty-six, excuse me. Beginning with verse number twenty-eight, if you'll follow along, when she had said this. It's uh, referring to Martha. She went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard this, she arose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them could, said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? The man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. Man, let's get into it. And last week we uh, dealt with the uh, first verses of this chapter and showed how there was a connection between the 10th chapter, actually, clear back to the 9th chapter, and then the 10th chapter. And the 10th chapter literally closes the public ministry of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And John 11 then documents the last and the greatest of the miracles that Jesus did in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This miracle was not a public miracle in in the sense that it really had nothing to do with his teaching and ministry, uh, but uh, was for the sake of his own disciples, his own believers, his own people. This family here from Bethany that uh, Jesus loved. He had friends. Jesus had friends. And here is the Good Shepherd again. The Good Shepherd chapter, chapter 10 there. We saw last week how the Good Shepherd ministered to his own. And now he's ministering to this family. We saw how he ministered to Martha last week. And he's going to minister to Mary also in in, in this chapter that we're dealing with. But here he is, the good shepherd. And he's coming to his own to correct their false thinking. Do you do you understand what I'm what I'm saying here? Jesus is the good shepherd. And I don't know where you are spiritually, but Jesus does. And he's not going to let you be in error, and he's not going to let you wander away from him because he's the good shepherd. And he cares for his own, and he's going to seek his own out, and he's going to find them, and he's going to fix them, just like he did with Peter, who decided to quit, as we discussed before. And so, what what we have here is is this, the good shepherd is going to minister again. So that's really the focus of this. So, but it is also here the trigger event that's going to caused the Sanhedrin to actively carry out their plan to kill Jesus. So chapters 11 and 12 are tied together and uh, are preparatory for the Passion Week. The main episode here that uh, we're dealing with is the tension now between Jesus' word and the signs which demonstrated His uh, Messianic office. He was the Messiah because he did these signs. But the importance was not so much the signs. The signs were for identification purposes. People saw the signs and believed in the signs and and wanted the signs. But it's the word that Jesus brought. He is the living word from God. In fact, John begins his his old gospel with this emphasis that He was the Word made flesh and dwelling tabernacling among us. And we beheld His glory through of the works. But the, the emphasis there is uh, His grace and truth which comes through the Word. The signs demonstrated this messianic office, but this tension then is evidenced in the anger that Jesus expresses. Jesus got angry. Paul says, be angry and sin not. Jesus did not sin in his anger. And it tells us that we can be angry, but we better be careful not to sin in it. But Jesus did become angry. And why? Because uh, of the unbelief that is clearly evidenced in this whole incident. For example, Mary had a, a different relationship with Mar, uh, with uh, Jesus than did her sister Martha. Martha, the two sisters here, uh, have a basic understanding of Jesus that, that's the same. Both expressed disappointment that the Lord had not come in time to heal Lazarus from his sickness. They both said identical words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at verse 21 and then look at verse 32. They're, they're identical. But Jesus' response to each of these sisters is clearly different. Very different. And he addressed the specific need of each sister. Everyone is different. Nobody is the same. And the Lord's work with each is specific to that individual and his needs. So in this message, I want us to examine here the Lord's treatment of these believing sisters. They're both believing sisters. And His anger at the unbelief of the Jews. So the first point here is different responses, different needs. So let's consider that. First of all, compare Jesus' response to each sister. With Mary, excuse me, with Martha... Jesus expressed what he was going to do. And why? Martha's a doer. She was a doer. And so he promised her, your brother will rise again. That's verse 23. We looked at that last week. And then she expressed her faith, indeed, that Lazarus would be raised on resurrection day. Because that was her hope. Her hope was was based on the belief of the Jews that a day was coming, that's according to Daniel chapter two, verses two and three, that uh, many who sleep in the in the dust of the ground or the earth will awake some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame in contempt. Even Job expressed hope in the resurrection he said though worms destroy this flesh yet in my flesh i will see god so this was their hope not not heaven they weren't looking forward to dying and going to heaven like christians do they believed that they would be put into the grave you read some of the psalms there and some of the uh, statements in the psalms don't You'd say, well, what did he mean by that? He says, the dead don't praise you. Those that are in the grave are not any good to you. And, uh, which meant that they really didn't believe that they were going to go join the Lord. In fact, uh, it, that they don't really join the Lord until after Jesus' resurrection. And then, Paul says, those who die in the Lord will, will go to be with the Lord. But before then, they went to Abraham's bosom, and, or to the place of torment, depending, to wait for the resurrection. And they, of course, did not have a full understanding of what that was until Jesus did come. But go back to John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus said there, and John's building on these truths. See, this is what you see in the Gospel of John. He's building on these truths and now he comes to Martha who uh, uh, doesn't really understand this truth. But in that uh, chapter, five verse 39, Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Yeah, there's a day coming. I hope it's soon. When all that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they who hear shall live. So Martha knew that the Lord uh, that, excuse me, Lazarus would be among those resurrected on the last day. Because she expressed that in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And by the way, it's interesting. Lazarus, the name, derives from the Hebrew Lazar, uh, which is an abbreviated form of the name Eleazar. Which means, he whom God helps. Yes, Lazarus was one whom God was helping. And what Martha needed to understand here was to trust Jesus and His Word. Not... Here again, let me just emphasize something. An awful lot of people trust doctrine. Now, I'm, 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 I'm all for doctrine. But doctrine teaches us to trust Jesus, not doctrine. I have a hope of a future resurrection, but I don't live for the hope of resurrection. I live for the, I live for the present reality of, tre- of Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior, and because I, I walk with Him, I have this hope. Of a future resurrection. This is what Martha needed to understand. She needed to trust Jesus. And his word. Not just express hope in some future event. She needed to know and to trust. The living trust. In the one who had the power to make that day happen. And that's what Jesus is doing in this. In this incident here. He said to. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the I'm I'm the one who's going to cause this future day. But I am also present life, future hope, present reality. See, this is the point. He and now he plans to this and back where that was back in. Uh, Verse 25, but now his plan is to raise Lazarus before the last day, this resurrection day, to demonstrate the power of his word. So let me ask you this question. What's more powerful, the words of Jesus or his deeds? Lots of people are looking for what Jesus will do for them rather than relate to Jesus as to who He is. So, this is what angered Jesus, was the the unbelief that refused to hear the Word of God, but rather demanded signs. Back in the fourth chapter, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, Jesus said, you will not believe. But what really... Does believing, what does believing in the signs and wonders produce? The desire to see more signs and wonders. What did, this, what did God intend for the signs and wonders? To point to the reality of who Jesus was so that we would listen to Him. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So on the other hand, Jesus did not need to assure Mary with his words so much because Mary sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. That's back in Luke chapter 10, verse 39. Mary's different. Martha's the doer. She's she's all for action. I'm going to serve the Lord. And Mary needs to be out here in the kitchen helping me. Well, they had servants. These were well-to-do people and they had servants who were actually doing the work. And Mary's supervising it and overseeing it and she's very careful of the details, testing, you know, testing each thing. Uh, And, uh, well, this needs a little salt and you need to put a little more spice in that one or whatever, you know. And she's running around the kitchen. Oh, this this is going to get cooked in time. And, oh, she's just wringing her hands. And then she's frustrated because her sister's sitting out there in the living area, at Jesus' feet, as Jesus is teaching the Word. See the difference? Mary is not just passive; She is a listener. Martha's the doer. Mary's the listener. And she sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teachings. But nevertheless, she's also encumbered by this issue of unbelief which upsets the lord and he needs to correct he needs to correct it in her as well and then here what why do i say this because mary's response there to jesus delay that resulted in her brother's death was excessive grief and how do i know that well let me explain it here just a, brief, a bit we read there that uh, in verse Uh, Chapter 10, verse 33, excuse me, 11-33, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. The Greek term that's, that's translated weeping is kalio, there's a number of words that are translated grief and weeping and uh, mourning in the scriptures. this one in particular has the idea of loud outbursts of, of crying and wailing. It's often translated wailing Now don't misunderstand me it is not wrong to to mourn and lament. The uh, Psalms teach us this. The issue here is is the intensity of the grieving, a despairing grief of hopelessness. See, that was her problem. Martha said, I know he's going to be raised in the last day. But in the meantime, we have the loss of the brethren. And, and so Mary is here is grieving with a with a grief that borders on hopelessness and that's wrong and that's what upsets the lord such a grief must never characterize a true believer why paul expressed there in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 and 14 but we want you to know uh, we excuse me we do not want you to be un, uninformed brethren about those who are asleep. This is the, the scriptural euphemism for a believer who dies. In fact, that's what Jesus used of Lazarus. He's asleep, and I'm going to go wake him. Well, the disciples misunderstood. They thought, well, if he's sleeping, that means he's on the mend. So you don't want to, him, don't want to wake him. You want to let him sleep? Let the body do its work. Jesus said, No, you, you, you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. Well, if he's dead, there's no need to go. See, they, that was their basic idea. So Paul here uses that euphemism here. But we want you to, uh, do not want you to be misinformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, believers who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Their souls have gone to be with the Lord, and when Jesus comes back in the resurrection, their souls will come with Jesus. So We don't, we don't mourn, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But sadly, this is the problem with Mary's grieving. It was no different from that of the Jews who accompanied her. And I believe that this caused Jesus to be deeply moved. Or I think a better translation of that deeply moved is the term indignant. He was indignant in his spirit and greatly troubled. But he's the good shepherd. He's going to fix it. He didn't want Mary to be doing this excessive grieving, that is a form of unbelief. And I, you know, I read commentators, and there are commentators who tend to express this response of Christ as showing sympathy and tenderness over, and uh, over, and not grief here over Lazarus. He was about to raise him from the dead. See. So why would he grieve his passing? I think Jesus' grief was over the hard and unbelieving hearts of those he was looking at who were living. And it appears that Mary was included in this indignation due to her excessive grief. Hers would, would be corrected, though, as that of some of the Jews who joined her, but others would not. So consider then Jesus' response to the Jews when he uh, prepared to heal the man with the withered hand in the synagogue there on the Sabbath day in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. The scripture says he looked around him with anger, grieved, same word, at their hardness of heart, indignant at their hardness of heart. So the Savior's concern then and anger, this is what we want to look at in the second point here. Jesus' anger concerning Mary and her companion's excessive grief is followed by the shortest verse of the Bible. And this is interesting. Here's a contrast. The term that's used here of, of this of Jesus weeping means that he just simply shed tears. He's a man. This is the this Greek word is used only here. But it just simply means he shed tears. He was moved and shed tears. And I think that that, that John uses it here specifically to contrast it with that of the wailing of Mary and the Jews. Some Jews interpret it then his weeping as expressing his love for the now departed friend and that may be so i think there might be something in that but again jesus is not grieving over lazarus cuz he knows that he's just about to call him out of the grave so why would he grieve over over him but i think he's expressing sadness at the, at the condition of, the, of his own people, his own disciples. Others were more critical. And they said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, back to chapter 9 there, see, have also kept this man from dying? There will always be critics. But here again, think about this for a minute. The sisters sent to their... To him and said that Lazarus was sick. It's a four day journey. Four day journey from where Jesus was there in Batania. On the other side of the Jordan River. Back to Bethany. Just two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a four day journey. Jesus, if Jesus left immediately. When he got the message. Lazarus would have been dead. By the time he got there. Jesus waited two more days. So then Lazarus was in the grave. Four days. When Jesus arrived. He still would not have been. If he had left immediately. He would not have been. There in time to. 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 Uh, heal him no this was god's plan god is in charge of everything the day of your dying is in his hand and if he wants you to be healed you will be healed if he wants you to wait till the resurrection you will wait till the resurrection god is absolutely in control But, you know, there's always going to be the doubters. Why did this man who healed the blind man, couldn't? why couldn't he have been here to heal his... Ah, but Jesus is so much more than just a healer. He's the resurrection. And the life. And the fact that Jesus was not grieving the loss of his friend, I think is demonstrated in verse number 38. Then Jesus deeply moved. Again, we have the similar language. Jesus deeply moved. And the idea here is indignant. He was indignant. Again, came to the tomb. He was indignant over the continued unbelief, particularly of the unbelieving sisters. It's the same concern that he showed in his lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. And the implication is, you weren't listening either. Had you been listening and had grace in your hearts, you would have been willing. So then Jesus pronounces the judgment upon them. See, your house is left to you desolate. The temple. Their hope was in the temple. That's Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. But then particularly note what Jesus said in in verse 39 of Matthew chapter 23. And this is, I think, really important. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What day is that? Resurrection day. When he comes to call those who are asleep out of the tombs, believers, and those who have died, unbelievers, to the judgment. So then note, when Martha protested the removal of the stone covering from the tomb's opening, Jesus rebuked her again he, and he said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's verse 40. See, Martha, she's a believer in Christ and she has a hope in the future, but she's not really listening to Jesus and walking in a present reality of his being her life, which she needs. She did not really listen to him or believe in him in this respect when he arrived. And rather than trusting his words, she gets caught up in the moment. My brother is dead. You could could have healed him, but he's dead. Now what? So Jesus assures Martha that Lazarus would live again, and she agreed, though, but only in the resurrection at the end of the age. So Jesus corrects her again by stating that he, not some future event, was to be her hope. Like many, Martha failed to understand the significance of his words and respond with a general, although correct, confession. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But who am I? Jesus says. I am, yes, I am the Christ, but who am I? And who am I to you? Did she really understand the words that she had just confessed? And if Christ was really truly with them, would He not have caused great joy and anticipation of His presence with them, even in their hour of grief? That's why Paul says, We sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. We don't sorrow like they. That's why lots of times you see uh, when people have a, a, believers have a funeral, they call it a celebration, a celebration of life. Because here is a believer who has lived a life for the Lord Jesus Christ, as imperfect as it may be, but he's not with the Lord. That's a cause of great joy. And even Mary expressed this same disappointment. Both women believed that Jesus would heal their brother of his sickness, but he died. Was he now beyond any hope from Christ? Now they're only left to grieve and hope that someday they might see him again, which they believed they would. Then when Jesus observed their excessive weeping, that is, wailing, of Mary and her companions, he felt a quiet outrage. These Jews had the same hopeless despair that characterizes the heathen in their grief. This was unacceptable. It's a failure to trust God's word and to rest confidently in the truth of God's word. Unbelief is a terrible sin. It's God-belittling. And it clearly angers God. We believers in Jesus Christ need to be very, very careful that we don't follow the same path. We correctly believe that the Lord is with us. But we believe it theoretically, not vitally. Jesus said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." And then we, oh Lord, what's going to happen to us? Oh, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Oh, but Jesus, I got this. Oh, this calamity in my life. What am I going to do? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, we're we're like. Martha. We confess him, but then lack the the realization that he is here now. We don't trust him unless he shows us a sign. Lord, give me some indication that you're with me. Well, Jesus, you don't need an indication. Jesus made a promise. Promises are good. He made a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with us. So then coming to the grave, Jesus experiences another, this second wave of emotion. Jesus experiences emotion. He's a man. He was deeply moved. Indignation. When he came to the tomb. And this quiet emotional outburst may have been his understanding that the miracle, and I think this is part of it as well, that the miracle he was about to perform was the spark that would bring about his own death at the hands of the Jews. Isn't that amazing? Who calls dead people out of the grave? But when we get into this a little bit deeper, we're going to see that this is exactly what happened. In fact, they said, we've even got to kill Lazarus again. Got to get rid of Lazarus. That shows you the the hardness and unbelief of the human heart. And he's going to experience a similar emotion there at Gethsemane, there in Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 37 38. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So here's an amazing thing the animosity building against Jesus was totally blind to the awesome miracle that he was performing, particularly this one. His signs. Were the indisputable evidence of his divine origin and presence, the signs would have turned, should have turned the observer to the Word of God. However, the hatred of the sinful heart is so powerful that the miracles actually added to the rage to Jesus' enemies toward him. And that brings us to the third point here: the resolution at the tomb. So remember what Martha said. And this, I thought, this is this is interesting and significant. Martha, when she first met him, after she said, "I wish you had been here, then my brother wouldn't have died." But then she adds in verse 22: "Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you." So at the tomb, Jesus prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Why did he do that? Did he need to do it? No. He did it for Martha. He said so. The prayer was directed to God as Father. I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. What does that tell us too? That tells us that our praying, we, in our praying, we need to understand we're not just addressing some deity out there, some awesome, majestic God that we really don't can't know because he's God and we're not, but that he is Father. He's our Father. We can call him Father. To me that is that it is powerful. And he said I I knew that you always hear me. That's his confidence in the prayer of the Father. And you know what? It's the same confidence you and I need to have. It's the same confidence. And notice now the, the, the next words in light of Martha's words earlier. Verse 22. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Martha said, you're the Christ sent from God, see? And I know that whatever you ask of God, He will give you. So Jesus is just confirming what Martha's belief was, whatever that whatever he asked from God, God would give him. Though some might construe the prayer as uh, praying to the gallery, play, he's playing to the gallery, as if he were just looking for honor as a wonder worker. I think the rever- that reverse is totally true. The pr- design of the prayer was to draw the hearers into an intimacy that Christ shares with His Father, that we need to share also with with the Father. Jesus was to be seen as an obedient Son. And the prayer demonstrates the fact that Jesus did nothing by Himself, as John, again, earlier records there in the 5th chapter, in verses 19-21. to Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. But what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is Himself is doing and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And... Jesus is showing us that like himself, we also must be totally dependent on the Father's will. You can compare that to Elijah's prayer there in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 there on Mount Carmel when he prayed, Answer me, O Lord. This time it's addressed to Yahweh, covenant, that His covenant God. That this people may know That you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. D.A. Carson says, The Father, excuse me, the Son asks, the Father grants. I like that. And you know what that says? Because we're children of God, we can ask, and the Father will grant. And God did hear his prayer. And in anticipation of the last day, he's going to give us a preview of what he's going to do on the last day. He called Lazarus out of the grave, which illustrates the power of his word. What God says has power. What Christ says has power. So in chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, I think that's a reference to regeneration. But he's showing that here, too, with respect to Lazarus. Those who hear will live. Lazarus heard him. <laughs> and then Augustine re- remarked that if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name all the dead would have responded. (laughs) The whole graveyard had got up. I'm not sure about that, but but that's interesting. But let me just close with this. There's an interesting thing about this too that we need to understand. Uh, When Lazarus came out, he's bound in grave clothes. He's bound in his grave clothes. And Jesus said to those who were standing by, loose him and let him go. This is a contrast to Christ's own resurrection. Here's another contrast. Lazarus was raised with a mortal body and would die again. Jesus was raised with a spiritual body, never to die again. Just like we're hoping for. Lazarus wore his grave clothes to illustrate that fact. Jesus left his grave clothes behind. They came in and found the grave clothes and then the face cover folded by itself. Lazarus was raised in anticipation of that which will bestow on him the power of an endless life, but again we see this amazing truth. Jesus must die in order for Lazarus to live. And he would live eternally because Jesus would be raised. And even those who believed in him saw only the miracle and missed the message. And this is not what Jesus does. It's who he is. It's who he is. And finally, this miracle produced a divided response. Some believed in Him. The character of their faith is not addressed. And some betrayed Him to the Pharisees, moving the Sanhedrin then to put Him to death, according to verse number 53. which We'll look at that here in a future message. So let me just close with these lessons. Number one, and this comes to our praying here. And by the way, I I am more and more convinced we need to pray more. Our prayers need to be carefully thought out because others are listening even though our prayer is addressed to God. Let's not express unbelief in our praying. Let's build our prayers upon the the Word of God and the truth that is revealed in the Word of God. Second, our confession of beliefs that we hold do we really believe in them? Or like Martha, do we miss the vitality of a living relationship with Christ? Well, I believe this and I believe that. You can, re, you can recite all of the beliefs, but do you have a living reality with the one you confess to believe? Thirdly, disobedience is often the fruit of well-intentioned but disbelieving reasoning. And how, how often are we guilty of this? Jesus just asked for a simple, childlike trust. Follow me. Fourthly, this passage teaches us that the word of God is inherent; has inherent power to accomplish whatever God wills. God's word will do. First Peter chapter. Uh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as, it, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Then we read there in, in the Hebrews four twelve, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. First Peter chapter one verse twenty three, you have the word, you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Lastly, fifthly, this passage ought to awaken in every believer a longing for the day when Jesus will call each of us from the grave into his glorious presence to be with him forever. So I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning with verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, there's the euphemism again, for death, but we shall all be changed. See, Lazarus was raised but not changed. That, to me, is a significant truth. But the future is coming when we shall be raised and changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And he's implying here that some of us will be alive when this trumpet sounds. I want to be among the living when the trumpet sounds, but I may not be. We shall all be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on immortality and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, O death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ father we thank you for this story and for its instruction for us we're we're followers of jesus we're some of us are like martha we're doers some of us are more like mary We're we would rather sit and listen But we all, Lord, are plagued with our doubts and our disbelief. And our Savior, I wonder how how many times He's indignant with us for refusing to hear His Word. Lord, we need Your grace, we need Your Spirit to work in our hearts to teach us simple childlike faith, to follow Christ, to be obedient to His Word and to believe that what He says is what is. And to have a dynamic personal relationship with Him every moment of our lives. Lord, grant this to Your people. And Lord, and I pray that by grace, if there's any listening to my voice who have never been saved, Lord, call them to a resurrection of life and regeneration. And make them your children. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.